0: natural md radio your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now i'm dr aviva Ron. Welcome back, everybody, to episode 114 of Natural MD Radio. Today, I'm going to be talking with Jennifer Block, a journalist who, just before Thanksgiving, sent an email to me with a link to her latest article, Doctors Are Not Gods, published in Scientific American. I was incredibly excited to read this article. In fact, it's one of those articles when you read it and you're like, ah, I wish I wrote that. She said so many things that I wanted to say. By Thanksgiving, I was actually, at that moment, glad I hadn't written the article because it blew up into a Twitter frenzy. Now, this article published on Scientific American was pulled by Scientific American, and I felt myself just so um kind of... One, my heart going out for Jennifer because I know it's such a big deal when you're in the middle of one of these kind of social media frenzies and it's there's things that are backfiring on you and it gets really crazy and it can feel really bad. But I also personally really relate to the debate that... Jennifer's article raised on social media. It really is relevant because for me, it reflected so much on this polarization that's happening amongst women who are concerned about women's health. So Jennifer, first of all, thank you for being here with me today and letting me kind of like peel the scab a little bit on this freshly healing wound. Um, I'm so grateful for you to be here and um, thank you for taking the time.
1: Thank thank you, Aviva. I'm glad to be talking to you. Well, it's wonderful to have you.
0: So before we dive in to the conversation and the controversies that erupted, can you tell my listeners about your beginnings as a journalist? I mean, you've been out front on some pretty big investigative pieces. For example, you rang the warning bell really early on the Assure I know it's called the contraceptive device. I feel like it's like a sterility device um, that's now been removed from the market in the US. Even prior to that, it was banned for use in several European countries. Tell us what you've been doing and what you bring to this conversation as an as a journalist.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, I've been a journalist for about 20 years. I began at Ms. Magazine, where I was an intern first, and then was hired on and as an assistant editor and worked my way up to associate editor. And, um, I kind of, in not a planned way took over the health beat. Um, when I look back it's something that, you know, I've always kind of had an intellectual interest in. I've always had feminist leanings and I've always been interested in women's experiences and I have a family full of doctors, but I was never interested in becoming a doctor. Um, so anyway, I I kind of took over the health section, editing the health section and um got all the health mail and I stumbled upon a big story about the medicalization of childbirth and what was happening in maternity care in the early 2000s which was that, you know, labor induction was was being used more and more, our C-section rate was going up. Um, and I started talking to women and hearing these stories of basically their power being undermined in the, in the maternity care, um, scenario. And it led to my first book to make a long story short, um, which is pushed, which came out in 2007 and, um, uh, is something that, um, is used as a, you know, it's on lists for trainings for doulas and childbirth educators. It's taught in university courses on the sociology of medicine and um, reproductive health and reproductive justice. And um, and I've just kind of followed this beat um, sort of at the intersection of medicine and, and feminism. So I've been interested in the controversies around surrogacy and breastfeeding and home birth and. Um, and of course, abortion and <laughs> contraception. And, um, and my interest in all of those issues led me to my most recent book, which is called Everything Below the Waist: Why Healthcare Needs a Feminist Revolution, um, in which I go documenting all the ways that the healthcare system in the U.S. is failing women in particular, um, but through a feminist lens and looking back at the unfinished business of the feminist health movement of the 1970s.
0: And that to me is a great point that I want to sort of kick off into is what is this unfinished business? But I just want to really emphasize, for those of you who are listening, Jennifer has a tremendously respected reputation as a journalist. Uh, her first book, it was the Kyrgyz Award that your first book won, wasn't it? You're um,
1: pushed? Uh, Kirkus Reviews gave it a start. Kirkus Reviews. Reviews doesn't have an award per se, but okay. yeah, it got really, you know, it got well-reviewed and I've, you know, I've been published in all sorts of publications you've heard of. <laughs> yeah, and I know you as a
0: thoughtful journalist. Um, you're not, you don't lean on hyperbole, you don't lean on scare tactics, you, you know, you you don't do takedown journalism. It's thoughtful journalism from the perspective of someone who is questioning, medical hegemony, questioning um, what we accept as evidence-based procedures that may actually not be as evidence-based as we think, and really um, saying that there are alternatives that do have evidence as well, and we might be considering them as we reframe how medicine is practiced. So, you know, just for listeners, I really want everyone to understand that Jennifer is a really well-regarded, not frivolous, not takedown type of journalist. And that becomes relevant in as we talk about what happened over Thanksgiving. But before we even get there, uh, like me, and I think we're in kind of relatively the same age range generationally, um, Our Bodies Ourselves was a major inspiration for me, as I talked about in a recent en- interview with Emily Nagoski of um, Who Comes uh come as you are, I really attribute that book with my own deep confidence in my body. I got that book when I was 15, you know, hand mirror and all, figuring Mm -hmm, out mm -hmm. what was going on there. And it set me on, you know, a really important path of honoring women's bodies, honoring women's autonomy over their own health. And like me, I think it's empowered a generation or more of women to take control over their health, to question medical authority, to not be shrinking violets about our vaginas and our reproductive health. And I believe it was the first time I personally had also been visually exposed to an image of the consequence of an illegal abortion, which was the reality for women when the book was published and continues to be for women in many states in the United States, leading to the growing risks of illegal abortion once again. So something was happening at that time, the 1970s. I got a hold of my copy in 81, so I was kind of that next generation of of women, if you will, who or the first generation benefiting from the generation ahead of me as feminist foremothers. What do you feel, you know, you could, if you could identify the unfinished business of the feminist um, health movement of the 70s, what, what are those pieces that need attention now or still?
1: Yeah, yeah. So that movement was, first of all, very, um, Skeptical of of the experts, right? They they they're what was so radical about that movement was that they dared to question the white coats. You know, the men who had been telling them this is how you give birth, this is what's going on. Don't don't worry your pretty little head about it. We know the answers. Um, They. You know, they started looking at their own bodies. They they took over this medical tool, the speculum, and they they got their mirrors and they they taught other women how to use it. Um, and they looked at each other's service services and they talked through their experiences and they started establishing a new literature, which is what our bodies ourselves represent. And it's I think it's so hard for, um, us in this day and age to imagine a world where there were no images. <laughs> You know there were there weren't shelves at the bookstore with information about female anatomy and women's health. There No, my no.
0: my first book was um a women's bodies women's was women's our bodies ourselves I mean was um really important for me, but actually the book that really showed me what was going on and the variety of women's vulvas was a book called A New View of a Woman's Body, which I yeah. got right at the same time. And it was sort of like the West Coast feminist book in a way, but it was really more images. And it was so uh, just earth-shaking to me to see these images. was incredible. And really just the diversity of women. And, you know, as a woman's practitioner now, there have been many times over the years where I've just looked at a woman and said, you have such a beautiful vulva. And she'll start crying, you know, or like, have you ever looked down there? And just women who feel so disconnected from their bodies. For me, it was that book that was so important for that.
1: Yeah. I write about that book in, in my new book. I, I, I agree with you. It was the West Coast, our bodies ourselves, and um, it and the the illustrations in that book are. There was a professional artist who joined the team. She she actually, well, I guess she wasn't professional at the time because she dropped out of art school to go <laughs> be a feminist health activist. She like showed up at the clinic door, this art school dropout, and said, "I want to help." And she ended up doing all these beautiful illustrations in that book. And there's this interesting history. They went they went back through all these medical texts trying to figure out, like, where is the clitoris? How big is it? What is it, you know, where does it begin and where does it end? Um, and that book is actually much more accurate than a lot of the medical textbooks at that time. I'm not because surprised. it shows that large, you know, that large grasshopper-like um, clitoris that now is becoming art. And, you know, there's the clitoris project from Huffington Post, etc. Um, but so this movement was very, you know, it was so curious about female anatomy and physiology. It was, um, it demanded respect for female anatomy and physiology and it, and it demanded a a different idea of who, and who the experts are. So it really challenged this idea that, that the experts are the MDs and the white coats and we are just, you know, these consumers who go and give up our authority at the doctor's office. Um, they, they challenged that whole model and we can thank this movement for, um, being part of the resurgence of midwifery and home birth and, um, for drug labeling. (laughs) So it was the feminist health activists who, who stormed the hearings on the, um, oral contraceptive, which at the time was a very high dose estrogen that was causing blood clots, you know, and from there we got like drug labeling and transparency and, and this idea of like, you know, patients deserve to know the risks as well as the benefits and to make decisions. Um, and it was, this, it was a movement that was also skeptical of, of pharma influence, even in the 70s. Um, and so I, you know, I wrote this book coming out of, of Pushed. Um, in which, you know, back to what you were saying before about like, and thank you for, for characterizing my work as being grounded. Um, I was blown away by the fact that, you know, a lot of what goes on in maternity wards around the country is not based on evidence.
0: It's really not. And, or yeah. it's based on a limited range of evidence that's often outdated and based on a small, very homogeneous sample of women in an unnatural setting.
1: Yeah, it blew me away at the time. I was very naive. I was in my twenties. I was <laughs> like, I was like, oh my god, did you know that? You know, most of what's going on in maturity wards is it's not in the evidence. The evidence says something else. I was so naive, and then I, of course, looked up from Push and I realized, oh crap, this is going on across women's lifespans. We don't really have evidence that the pill treats endometriosis or PMS, but it's being used that way, right? Um, you know, we're we're recommending annual pap tests in, you know, g- against the recommendations of the United States Preventive T- Services Task Force, et cetera, et cetera. We, we have this high hysterectomy rate and we're telling women that, you know, it's going to have absolutely no impact on their sexual health. We're doing a lot of things across the lifespan that are, you know, for which there is not enough evidence, or the evidence actually is contradictory. Um, And I had this question while I was writing Pushed, and I and the question persisted, which was like, where is the where are the feminist health activists? Where, where is where is this, you know, why don't we care that um, almost a third of women giving birth are being cut open? And we know that the the rate at which cesareans are beneficial is much lower than that. Um, why don't we care about that? You know, we, why aren't why aren't we having hearings about the hysterectomy rate? There were congressional hearings in 1993, and before that, there was another hearing in the 70s. The rate really hasn't changed, but it just doesn't seem to be something we care about. And then I also was observing when when we would have discourse publicly about things like the pill or epidurals or breastfeeding um i noticed this that the the feminist response tended to be a very like very, like a lot of defensiveness of the treatment or product um so a lot of defensiveness of formula and um a lot of defensiveness of the of hormonal contraception also of cesareans. Um, and it's
0: really complicated yeah. because like as yeah. a as a physician who does women's health and obstetrics, I really want women to understand that the international standard that is acceptable for which we know that above actually endangers moms and babies well-being is about 17%. So the United States is at twice that rate. And yet when you're in labor and your OB says, we have to do this right now or your baby's gonna die, as a mom, we're gonna do everything we can to protect our baby. And that is not a moment where you can usually feel like you can say, "Uh, let me hit pause and do my little research on this and see whether what you're saying is true. Or How do you interpret as a mom in labor, a category one, two, or three heart tone? And then when you're on the other side of it, naturally, you're going to feel defensive about your choice. And yet, we know from like an insider's perspective that a lot of those fetal heart tracings are misread and err on the side of conservative meaning going toward a C-section there's actually a saying in obstetrics the only cesarean you get sued for is the one you didn't do right, and 83% right. of OBs are already going to experience a lawsuit in their career so you know you've got this really complicated situation and if you talk about it, I think a lot of women who have become, in a way, a victim of that system without knowing it, feel like they're being attacked. And yet we still have to change the system, right? Without women feeling blamed for somehow getting duped into something or having something unnecessary. And like, this is a story you're going to remember your whole life. So it's natural also to want to have a revisionist. Um, approach to it ourselves to make peace with it internally. Plus you don't know, you don't know if you were one of the women who did or didn't actually need it. Right.
1: I think that's the key. Exactly. Yeah. And like, so these conversations hold so much complexity and I think we have a problem (laughs) in our culture, especially right now um, with the, you know, the, the quote unquote discourse that happens um, online. Like we have a problem holding all this complexity that You know, we can look at a person. We can we can talk to a person on their individual experience and acknowledge, yeah, it sounded like you. It sounded like you needed that cesarean in that moment, and like that might have been hard. And I'm sorry that happened. And you still, are, you know, you can still bond with your baby. You can still recover from that. We're resilient, and we can also have the conversation that across the population, our our rate is is. Too high. We know that a good percentage of those cesareans that are happening are unnecessary. They're causing harm. They're causing, um, they're contributing to the crisis of maternal death. They're not the only reason, but they are definitely contributing. And, like we have to be able to hold those two truths—that we have a, a public health problem and individuals have valid experiences—and we don't know, right? When you're talking, we don't know which ones were the were the necessary ones. But I think we can have those conversations if we try. And the same the same goes for the pill. I mean, uh, so the pill, you know, was revolutionary when it came uh, into use in the '60s. It came into use at a time when abortion was very dangerous and illegal, when you couldn't just go to the corner store and get condoms, when you had to be married to get a diaphragm, right? And so all of a sudden, women who didn't have a lot of power socially had the power to discreetly control their fertility. Um, But we can also talk about the fact that now we know a lot more about how the pill impacts our bodies and our physiology and that there are a lot of negative impacts Um, and we also live in a different time when we have more choices about how to control our fertility and hopefully in a time when we have more power in our relationships. Um, and so I, you know, I, I wanted to have those conversations, um, and I observed, uh, other people trying to have those conversations, other authors, um, who had written books that, you know, talked about all these negative impacts of, of hormonal contraception and questioned whether it really deserved to be on the pedestal that we put it on. Like I couldn't have got my law degree without the pill. You know, I couldn't have <laughs> I couldn't have had my life without the pill. Um, I saw them get attacked by, in the um in the feminist blogosphere, um in the mainstream media. I saw them um attacked as anti-choice. They were assumed to be anti-sex. Um, and I just thought like, wow, what happened here? Because this was a conversation we were capable of in the seventies. The the feminist health activists were on the front lines of questioning the safety of the pill while they acknowledged that it, it had all this great promise for women's empowerment and equality. They still were concerned about its impact. Um, and I observed, you know, that we were really having a hard time having that conversation, and there are, several, you know, you could look at breastfeeding, right? Like we can't have a conversation about the reality of um, breastfeeding without the worry that we're going to make people feel bad. And, um, and
0: there's a, there's like an an inability to have this yes and conversation. Yes, and it feels exactly. like everything gets polarized. And one of the things that I've seen in my own clinical experience. And, you know, this is in hospitals, in clinics, in hearing physicians give uh, lectures at conferences, is this sort of inability of the medical model to re-identify itself as not infallible. like this this belief of doctor as God, this belief of medicine being the answer, and it being above and beyond reproach because it's based on this sort of like idea of evidence, which is a very limited concept, actually the way it's applied. And yet we see over and over and over, I mean, I can name ten things right off to you, just off the cuff. Like right now in the past, probably, 10 years that were like, oops, oh, well, mm, no, we shouldn't have been doing pap testing on women under 21 because now we've got all these women who had leap procedures who can't maintain a pregnancy because their cervix is damaged or conversely can't deliver a baby, birth a baby through their cervix because their cervix is scarred or, um, you know, how often we were doing breast exams or, I mean, just like on and on and on, things that have been- Pelvic re- exams. Pelvic exams, like, like a pharmaceuticals that have been dispensed, like the Esure. I mean, let's look at the Eshore. As you would have thought, the Dalcon shield would have been a cautionary tale. And then we have the Sure, And it's this continual one idea that medicine has all the answers and that everything outside of that until it's approved by medicine and Columbus, if you will, is, um, you know, is alternative, but also that women's voices don't count. And what I see over and over and over with the Assure, we saw it with the Dalcon, we see it with all kinds of procedures and pharmaceuticals. Women are saying, hey, this is how I'm feeling. And something's not right since I started using this. And then like the medical answer is, oh, well, that couldn't be like that. That's not a known side effect until boom, we've got, you know, hundreds or thousands or more women damaged by a procedure. And yet we're still not having this yes and conversation. Like, yes, there is a role for the pill and you have a right to know what the true evidence is, right? Yes, there are needs for C-sections and also here's what you really need to know. We're just not getting true informed consent.
1: Right. This just came up too with... The leap procedure, right? Did, there was there was a great piece in Cosmopolitan. Oh yes, mm-hmm. and it about, got a lot of pushback. It got so much pushback. I mean, so if your listeners didn't see it, it's by Hannah Smothers. She spent a year reporting it. Um, she, I, I, I really like. I really commend her for for the piece. I it was I had I had reporter jealousy. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I had done it. Um, I was really interested in it because I had heard the anecdotes. I had heard people, friends, people I'd interviewed tell me that they had had a leap procedure and for a year they couldn't have an orgasm yeah. or it just didn't feel the same anymore. Or, or now they were t- being told they were, you know, their cervix was incompetent while they were pregnant. Right. Um, and so the piece was titled something like this procedure may cause, may, may prevent you from having an orgasm. Um, and, Twitter went crazy, med Twitter, I didn't know that term until recently, but med Twitter went crazy and um, said, you know, this is so dangerous, women are going to stop getting pap tests, Um, this isn't happening. Uh, there's no, you know, yeah, we have research that hysterectomy has no relationship to sexual dysfunction. So this couldn't be happening, um, which is not have, true either. Uh, right? Yeah. I mean, well, it, and, and that points to what we mean with when, when people use evidence and, and wield the science term around, you know my understanding is that there's very little study of the relationship between hysterectomy and sexual function. It's It's been, uh, you know, they don't, the, the studies that do exist don't follow women very far from their procedure. They ask them really only about like how frequently they have intercourse, not about their actual experience of it. And so, you know, there's problems with the research. And so when someone says, well, the research doesn't show that, well, then the next question is, well, how much research is there on that? And what, were the questions asked in the research? Right. but you know, people don't usually go that far, um, and and we listen to our doctors.
0: Well, and so here's that, the thing. We,
1: go ahead. Sorry. No, no, just to say that you know the the piece was about anecdotal reports. It did not claim that there is a definitive um, percentage risk. Right. It it just asked the question. It said, right, like, "But Look, here's the thing: like, I-, women I having this experience." Mm-hmm and there are researchers who are mapping out the nerves of the cervix and so we need we need we need to pay attention to this women need to know that this is a possibility doctors should know that this is a possibility and should maybe like let's think about this and what does it mean that the nerves are there and how should we be doing these procedures i mean that was the that was the point of the article and it it was attacked well so and here's
0: the thing back in let's see around i mean i guess 97 I remember having a conversation at one of our local midwifery meetings about women who had had leap procedures or cone biopsies, and we were noticing amongst us as midwives a pattern of women who were having trouble dilating in labor. So we were transferring women to the hospital from home birth who were unable to get past two centimeters, if that or or weren't even going into labor effectively and we're ending up needing inductions cervical di- dilatation mechanically and often C sections and we're like wait a minute are you noticing a pattern here that all of these women had had a cervical procedure and so this is back you know this is what 22 years ago now and at that time OBs and gynecologists were saying there is zero connection. Now, at this time, we were still doing pap smears on women under 21 because Mm -hmm. we were checking for cervical dysplasia and early HPV testing. And what was discovered, if you will, or finally determined not that long ago in the last decade was that we should never be doing paps under under the age of 21 because they lead to overdiagnosis of cervical problems that will usually clear on their own. Overdiagnosis of HPV, which will almost always clear on its own in a woman under 21. And it was leading to procedures that are now well documented and proven to cause the problems that we were describing back then difficulty with dilatation because of cervical scarring. And as you mentioned, what used to be called incompetent cervix, which is the the language that's used is so incredible. Um, But a woman's, uh, her cervix's inability to stay closed during a pregnancy. So her either having a mid-pregnancy miscarriage or needing a procedure called a cerclage to literally tie the cervix, you know, stitch the cervix closed until she'd go into labor. And these are things that we've been told over and over no, those couldn't be the side effects. Okay, so I want to switch switch gears just a little bit here. So along comes this ob guy Jen Gunter, who has, as you and I both know, she didn't exist in the social media world until a couple of few years ago, and she had a meteoric professional career rise, which started out as a very trendy Goop and Gwyneth Paltrow takedown approach, And has extended into a takedown of most natural therapies, which in my worldview, completely misses the point as to why women are seeking them. And she emphasizes a modern medicine as pretty much always right, in contrast to what she's actually disparaged as old wives tales. She's used that term disparagingly, Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is a classic term to disparage traditional knowledge, and women's experiences almost entirely. Yet, because she is a pro-abortion, self-identified feminist MD who's comfortable saying vagina on Twitter, and this whole GP takedown, she has literally become an almost instant celebrity. So I saw this mug today on Instagram. It was from a different celebrity, obi and the mug said, Please don't confuse your Instagram search with my medical degree. And I feel that that kind of like says so much. It's reinforcing this doctor as God and insults patients' ability to do research and discern research. It's not stupid to question medical authority. Doctors make errors. Medicine, as we just talked about, is full of whoopsies. And it's really important to search for information when... We're not going to necessarily be handed that clear uh, informed consent information from our physicians. And, you know, this is also at a time that um women's experiences of what's going on in their bodies are dismissed and missed by conventional medicine. And we know that it takes, like nine years for a woman to get an endometriosis diagnosis. We know that a woman is more likely to die of a heart attack because her symptoms are going to be dismissed as stress or anxiety. And so this is exactly why, women are searching for alternatives anywhere they can find them and on the other hand you know i do agree with a portion of what jennifer gunter says like there is a lot of green halo and just bs happening in the women's wellness movement at a very high price so so i you know i want to know what inspired you in the first place to write that article um that day you woke up one day and you're like i'm going to write this article it's it's really about doctors and, um, not listening, doctors, not listening to women, right? This role of doctor as God, but Jennifer was kind of the sort of shining example that of someone who might actually, I mean, let's talk about like, let me just say this. She's got, for those of you who are listening, she had, a, I don't know if it's still ongoing, a television show in Canada, and she called it gensplaining. And the irony of this title which she's really proud of is it's it's a riff on something called mansplaining which was a phenomenon described by Rebecca, Rebecca Solnit King. yeah who is a feminist writer brilliant woman and kind of social commentator and the, that's the phenomenon that all of us have experienced where we're condescended to in a conversation we're told something that we already know as if it's fact from someone else um, by a man. So the fact that she called it gensplaining is to me like it says so much. Tell me what inspired you and then like tell us what happened.
1: Yeah. Gensplaining and her book is called The Vagina Bible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's, she's kind of taken on, she's become emblematic of this attitude that to me is like the old school attitude that I thought, we had kind of gotten over the attitude of, you know, um, the paternalistic doctor who tells you what to do and you listen and you don't ask too many questions and, and they, they kind of take their degree and hit it, you over the head with it and say, I'm the one who studied. I'm the one who knows best. Um, I thought that I, cause I see medicine evolving, um, in other, in other respects. I see, I see, you know, um, more integrative medical doctors speaking up, and I see physicians taking on medical reversals and um, fighting over diagnosis and over treatment, and trying to raise awareness about that, and trying to trying to bring medicine back into a, a more evidence based place, or bring it to an evidence based place. Um, and I, I I I've been you know following Gunter for a while and. I very much appreciate her, um, being out front about having provided abortions and the way that she's willing to, you know, get down in the mud with people to, to, um, smack down, you know, these totally inaccurate descriptions of procedures. And, um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of misinformation and, um, myth coming from the anti-abortion movement. And so she's one of the people who's willing to be out there. Um, and that's brave. That's, that's really brave in this culture. And I commend her for that. And I also, you know, we need, we need doctors to clarify that vaginas don't need annual checking and that they're self-cleaning, that we don't need to douche and, um, that, you know, cutting the labia, doing like labiaplasty and vaginal rejuvenation could have potentially harmful consequences. Like she's been She's been out there um, doing that myth debunking, which I think is really important. But on the other hand, she does seem to have this very black and white view of what is medicine and what is myth. And to from what I've seen, anything that might fall under the banner of natural or big wellness um, gets thrown into that bucket of myth for her. And I've... I've observed her on Twitter being very dismissive of people who, um, you know, find that yogurt helps them when they have a yeast problem or people who are choosing to do this vaginal steaming, um, thing as a, as a, as a like therapeutic healing process, um, or even people who are using the, the quote unquote jade eggs, the Yoni eggs, um, that, you know, goop was famous for that they won't sell anymore. Um, And I, you know, I I've observed it for a while. I thought about writing something, but it really wasn't until uh, I learned that that um, Gunter was kind of grouping our bodies ourselves into that category of misinformation and goop and pseudoscience and, um, you know, harmful mythologies Um, When she's she in her in her recent media tour for her book and show and everything, she'd been talking about our bodies ourselves a lot. Um, And they wrote her a letter, they cc'd me. And at that point, I was like, Okay, this is this is now, you know, interesting, I think, as a story. And also, like, I just wrote this book that is about, you know, through this lens of the feminist health movement, which gave us our bodies ourselves. And so now, like, I know this, I know this history. And it's not fair to group our bodies ourselves with goop um, just because our bodies ourselves mentions yogurt as something that has helped some of us. <laughs> like, that's how they phrase it in all the editions. Like, some of us have found relief using yogurt. It doesn't say, you know, yogurt is an evidence-based treatment for yeast or anything like that. It just kind of, you know, it, in the our bodies ourselves tradition, um, you know, it, it includes the, the experiences of women. Well, and can I just interject um, one
0: thought right yeah. there? I want to just, just kind of hit pause on one thing, which is what is evidence-based medicine? And we tend to think of evidence-based medicine as randomized control, double-blind, placebo, crossover, you know, like all these abbreviations of what is a good study. But evidence-based medicine, which first kind of showed its face in medicine in the 1800s actually, and then kind of disappeared as a concept, was established by a gentleman who passed away a few years ago named David Sackett. He was a Canadian researcher and his entire life was dedicated to this concept of evidence-based medicine. And he defined evidence-based medicine not in this very sort of um, narrow way that it's just the randomized control trial. It was actually a three-armed or three-legged stool that you could sit on to make your decisions about best care. And either a patient could use it, or a physician could use it, or a hospital risk management team could use it. But the three three legs of evidence-based medicine are best available evidence the best consensus from the professional group, and patient preference. And those three things together. So, you know, there aren't a lot of physicians who are probably using yogurt on their vulva or in their vagina. So the best professional evidence in that case would actually be women using it. And if women women prefer to try yogurt before they try Nystatin or something else, I mean, there's no evidence of harm from it. So... I feel like, you know, we're we're so quick to attack something really uh really quite um harmless when we can always still go and use the conventional intervention if we need to. But I just want to uh, uh, you know just really wanted to say that about evidence. It's not just this lack of a randomized controlled trial. We have to look at the whole picture when we talk about it.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I think yeah. that's so important and I I actually I mean maybe you'll write something about it maybe I'll write something about it but I think that there is a lot of misunderstanding about what this this term means and and there's a lot of misuse of of science and what's science based and what's anti-science and what's pseudoscience um and so you know I had a few big points with my piece I you know I one one point was that look like like you said these things yogurt, even jade eggs, there's no there's no evidence of harm of jade eggs. Um, vaginal steaming like yeah, th- I guess there's a risk that you could get a burn, but so is there with you know anything you do with hot water or <laughs> cooking or hot coffee or hot tea. Um, but my point is like people are not finding the answers um, they're they come out of childbirth, you know, like having issues with sex. they're not getting answers. they're getting you know just relaxed. they're getting the advice to go see a psychiatrist um, or they're just getting like, well, here's Diflucan or here's, you know, go to the drugstore. and those treatments for many people don't work effectively or they, they, they work temporarily. And then, you know, I'm hearing a lot about people, maybe you can talk about the cycling back and forth between BV and yeast and kind of not, not getting a balance. So people aren't getting what they need from, from conventional medicine and they're, and sure of course they're looking they're looking elsewhere and and some people are actually finding some relief um and so one of my points was like let's listen to them if they're finding relief um first of all let's listen to them and and acknowledge their experience and and why would we shame them why would we publicly um shame them and and associate them with anti science and pseudoscience when you know what they're doing is is something for themselves. They're well, not, and- this has no bearing on the public health. This is not the same as you know c- like questions of climate and and immunizations. This is like someone's personal health, personal decision. Um, and this is really what like the feminist health movement stood for. It was- well,
0: and this devising divisiveness and this sort of like insulting anything that is not medically proven as hokey or again, like old wives' tale. This is a tactic that has gone back hundreds of years in our history. It was the tactic that was used with the Flexner Report in 1912 to close down almost every single medical school that trained women, African-Americans and Native Americans in medicine and and single-handedly excluded whole populations from getting medical training until essentially the 1970s when still only 9% of medical classes were, doctors were women. Um, So it's like, I feel like I'm watching a woman doctor be emblematic of a very long history of it's almost like I'm, I'm watching the worst of patriarchy coming out in this situation. And yet it's confusing because a lot of what is being said is, is also true. Right. So how do you yeah. distill those grains of truth without um, kind of losing the ability to feel confident looking at what the alternatives are?
1: Yeah. I mean, that that's what I was seeing too, that there is a long history of, Medicine with a capital M, you know, maintaining its authority by uh, smearing other other practitioners and modalities. I mean, the history of medicine in the United States, North America, is that it established its authority by putting midwives out of business. I mean, yeah. And then you smeared. Totally. And then
0: you look at things like, you know, 22 years ago, midwives saying, well, not so sure about these leap procedures on these young women, or let's look at delayed cord cutting or using honey for coughs instead of codeine or all of these. I mean, there are just dozens, if not hundreds of examples we can give of things that have come from outside of conventional medicine born out of need for people looking for a safer option when they couldn't find it. And then lo and behold, 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, now actually being part of mainstream medicine because they were found to be actually effective.
1: You know, the stuff we're talking about, like, it may be placebo, it may just be that you know, as someone said to me, like, if you put a yoni egg in your vagina, you're directing energy and intention and thought toward that part of the body. And maybe that helps. Like, I don't, I don't know if these things are having an effect. I don't know if it's placebo, if they are, I have no idea. But I think that the point is that, People are having an individual experience with them that they find is positive. And we're not talking about sticking razors <laughs>
0: up your vagina. Well, you know. We're not talking um, about bleach. Yeah. We're no. not talking
1: about things that are like overtly risky and harmful. Um, and so why are we focusing what why are we spending time on that? I mean, that was my other big point. Like, we have major problems in women's health right now. We have a maternal death rate that's rising, we have people complaining of obstetric violence. Aside from that, just just, you know, being bullied in the maternity ward, not being listened to, be, getting exams they don't want, getting procedures they don't want. Um, we have crises with vaginal mesh and, you know, we had the East Shore disaster. Uh, we, we've got big problems. And so if you have a big platform, are you going to use it to talk about yogurt? Or are we going to talk about, are we going to really address the bigger problems? Well,
0: and that's, you know, that's what I really wanted to ask you, you know, what you think is happening here? Because, you know, in my notes for our talk today, you know, I have this whole thing about like, okay, well, yeah, we've got a 34% C-section rate. We've got an inflate, and, you know, the the history, hysterectomy rate has come down by about uh, 40% over the past decade. However, it's still at least twice as high as it's supposed to be. And big studies have now shown that women are not being informed of, I'm not talking about alternative medicine, but I'm talking about non-surgical medical alternatives. We -hmm. have one of the worst maternal mortality rates in the Western world, and it's going up. So why is somebody who is clearly intelligent and educated going after goop? It seems like such a red herring. I mean, first of all, it seems like a cheap and easy target, but I mean, honestly, how many women in the United States are really buying jade eggs compared to how many are? I mean, fifty percent of sixty uh, percent of women over fifty currently will have a hysterectomy in her lifetime, and at least half of those are unnecessary. Right. So, what 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 do you think? She, why is she doing this?
1: Well, I think in terms of you know brand and and. Uh, getting followers. It's just, those are easy targets. Like you Mm -hmm. said, you know, it's easy to criticize goop. I, I I called Gwyneth Paltrow a salad of low hanging fruit, a line I really <laughs> liked from my piece, um, you know, because she is like, it's so easy to make fun of her. It's so easy to to um, slam jade eggs. You know, it, it it turns out they have no ancient origin story. Nope. Um, so, you know, it's e- it, it, it's so easy and it's also easy to to slam jade the um, anti-choice movement. So those are easy targets. I think what's much more difficult—it's again the more complex conversation—is—is is all the other stuff in the middle between that those two ends of the continuum. Um, it's it's all the you know the the gaps in care, which is you that, know where I live
0: in my right? work and trying to really think about how in twenty twenty this podcast is going to transform so that we can really start addressing these issues together in a bigger way.
1: Right. I mean, women are not getting they're not getting help with endometriosis. They're they're I mean, I'm seeing that on Twitter now. There's a large community on social media of women who are really pissed off because yeah. they've gone years without a diagnosis and all they're being offered are, you know, drugs and surgery. Um, and, and it's hard to even find a surgeon who does the proper excision, excision surgery. And they're also battling the, the, um, disagreement over, over what they, what their disease is and what the proper treatment is with their own physician. So, um, you know, so we've got like that, that kind of area of like hormonal, dysfunction and, and the, these diseases, this um, endometriosis and PCOS that are being more understood as these like systemic right. diseases that have other processes that you know, even if you take the pill and get rid of some symptoms that you still have this disease that's in the background putting you at more risk for heart disease and infertility and maybe even cancer, et cetera. Um, and we've got this epidemic of chronic pain and pelvic pain. Um, women are just not, you know, we have all these issues, and we've got, I mean, maternity care. I, my book, my first book, is unfortunately still pretty relevant because we still have this problem that the the vast majority of, pro, you know, of of labor protocol in hospitals is is counterproductive it's it's causing <laughs> women and babies harm it's you know resulting in our high cesarean rate um and it's resulting in in i mean routine everyday kind of obstetric violence in that um this is a this is a case where we are not treating pregnant people as we would treat any other patient in the hospital in that we would get consent to enter their bodies I mean, we're just, it's like they're in another class. You know, we tell every day women are told, well, you have a breech baby, you can't have a vaginal birth.
0: There are a lot of rules that were treated as if we're children around. Mm-hmm. And we definitely seem to become the second priority around childbirth. And of course, none of us as pregnant mamas wouldn't put our healthy baby as the first priority, but I think our definition of a healthy mom is really limited to sort of like surviving childbirth with minimum damage as opposed to actually the experience itself being an important part of your memory bank and your emotional experience and how that shifts your experience of being a mom too. So
1: Mm -hmm. like, you know, the choice that some women are making to quote unquote free birth, you know, on the one hand looks like a Irresponsible, reckless decision. But on the other hand, they they see it as life and death. Like if, you know, they know if they're, they've got certain characteristics, um, if they go to the hospital, it's going to, you know, they're going to get a C-section whether they like it or not. And, well,
0: Or if they're even fortunate enough to have a hospital in their county or within hours of where they live. And yet right? they're denied, like in Georgia, where I used to live and practice midwifery, still, even from when I started there in 1985 to now, has one of the highest infant mortality rates in the country, yet there are counties with no hospital access. And yet, home birth midwifery, unless you're a certified nurse midwife, continues to be not legal. So women are literally denied access to safe providers or any providers
1: right and i'm i'm reading about a midwife in georgia right now who's suing she's my mi- she was my
0: midwife teacher i just talked to her was the other day she? she was one of, i have i had um this midwife i trained with for the for maybe like 6 months and then i switched to this collective of midwives that i then spent 2 years with but yeah i just spoke with her so yeah she's being sued to even be able to use the word midwife
1: right and in new york same scenario we don't recognize the certified professional midwife credential here and we have a midwife upstate who's being charged with a bunch of felonies um i've actually written a piece for long reads that's going to be out in january about um the history in new york but you know i think what this brings up is that um we you know what we're dealing with is is the tension over authority there's like a you know medical doctors have had Um, They've sat at the top of this hierarchy of authoritative knowledge, and that has to do with the history that we talked about um, and how medicine established itself. And it's a disservice to all of us because they don't know everything. (laughs) And maybe as someone who went through medical training and midwifery training, you can speak to this too, but medical doctors absolutely have an expertise, Um, but I I. Th- they don't know everything. They're a piece of the puzzle. They're not the entire puzzle. And there are other um, practitioners who have expertise and authority. Um, and, and it's, they've had to fight for that. They've had to fight for that recognition. They've had to fight for the license to practice, and they still don't have it in many states, like for the certified professional midwives. Um, and it's a disservice to us as as people, as consumers, as patients, because um, if I'm in Georgia and I want to have a physiological birth, I want support, I want expertise, I want someone who has the expertise of of supporting that process. I want to. I don't want to be in a hospital. Um, I can't choose that because that authority hasn't been recognized.
0: Well, it's also um, driving. The exact situation that then, in a way, becomes a self fulfilling prophecy uh, from the medical model to this sort of outside the box model. And that because so many states are refusing to recognize the provenance of midwives or other practitioners, there's no way for the consumer, if you will, for the woman who's pregnant or the woman who's looking for an alternative to an antibiotic for an ear infection in her kid rather than just getting the standard, you know, you need an antibiotic rather than the actual evidence, which is there's a wide range of wait and watch to give an antibiotic in that. Um, So then the people who are practicing some of these professions Become increasingly wild west and unregulated. So you, as a as a consumer, don't know the difference between someone who's a certified professional midwife or somebody who woke up one day had a calling, went to their niece's birth, and are suddenly putting themselves out as a midwife. You have no way to um, really get to the bottom of that. And I've seen complicated situations happen that way too. So you know, to me, the answer is unless medicine expands its definition of um, who's acceptable? What's acceptable? Or stops trying to regulate everything and l- allows for more. Not, I, I don't even want to use the word allows because it still sounds like it's at the top of the. They're um, in,
1: right, they're in you charge.
0: Know, yeah, but you know, starts to move over a little bit and expand um, partnerships. That's the answer, right? You have to be able to have a smooth transport from a home birth particularly in a state that's not legal, or women are going to stay home and midwives are going to stay home past the point that it's safe. So it's the it's the medical model that's even generating some of this lack of safety that might exist. It's the medical model that's creating the vacuum in which a consumer-driven business like Goop can start to become sort of a healthcare space for women.
1: That's right. And it's fascinating that I mean, goop. You know, a a, a person, uh, an actor, <laughs> doesn't have the same ethical responsibilities as a as even a a, a chiropractic doctor or acupuncturist or midwife, right? So, sh- someone like like Gwyneth can can get some products, put them on a website, and and say things about them, and do that, and that's perfectly. It's perfectly fine in our capitalist society. Like that—that's totally—that's totally kosher. She well, and here she I was She did say too much about jade eggs. I know she got. She there was a lawsuit about that. But. but
0: even there, right? I mean, I have a problem with the capitalist wellness, or you know, big wellness. I really do. I have so many problems. We could have a whole conversation just about that. But let's still counterpoint that to somebody goes online. They know what goop is. They go to goop, they see a jade egg, or they see an herbal this, or they see a supplement that, and they make a decision about, yeah, you know, I really don't want to spend 80 bucks on that, or yeah, maybe I'll try that. And we want to criticize that, but what about when you sit down to watch Grey's Anatomy, or Billions, or whatever, Game of Thrones, whatever shows are on, and we're one out of two countries that allow direct-to-consumer totally capitalist driven marketing of drugs that can actually kill you compared to a jade egg. So I feel like even still, like yes, we can criticize that capitalism, but let's get real, even still, how many women are gonna even still, how many women are gonna go to goop versus how many women are gonna see that pharmaceutical advertised on television for their rheumatoid arthritis and are going to go ask their doctor for it. Statistically a lot. And that does have risk. And so I'm still like, yeah, okay. I, I still don't have time to kind of come out on goop about it. You know what I mean?
1: That's such a good point. That is such a good point. Yeah. All right. Can we swing back to what happened when you wrote this article? So you,
0: it came out right before Thanksgiving. A bunch of us were pretty excited. My social media uh, pe- followers loved it. Uh, people really felt like it expressed something that they couldn't quite put their finger on, but were frustrated about. And next thing you know, you're at the center of this storm, and Siam, Scientific American, pulls the article down,
1: yeah. so um I you know, I haven't been very active on Twitter um, and I experienced the uh, I got trolled. i <laughs> I was in the center of a Twitter war over Thanksgiving. um had never experienced that before and, uh, had to get up to speed really quickly on how to deal with it. Um, so there were a lot of phone calls to, um, and finding, finding mentors who generally were younger than me, (laughs) Mm -hmm. who know, who know Twitter better, um, as millennials. And, um, and, you know, I noticed a couple things about it. I did, I did not let it take over my life for Thanksgiving. I, I actually, um, I think I did a pretty good job of, checking in with Twitter for a minute, but then going offline and enjoying my family and (laughs) having, having a nice meal, um, you know, seeing friends. Um, But I did, you know, there were a few things that I noticed about what was going on on Twitter. And one was that this, the people who were attacking me There was some reasoned criticism, which I take, you know, there were a couple of errors um, that could have easily been corrected. You know, I pointed to a study on yogurt that it turns out was in a sketchy journal. I could have pointed to another study, but my point in that was not to prove anything about yogurt. It was just to say, look, there is some research on it. Like, this is not you know, some people have been interested in it enough to actually do randomized control trial on it. So there's, you know, there is scientific interest in it. Um, but I wasn't citing that study to like prove anything about yogurt. Um, and there was another little error about case reports about tea tree oil. You know, I thought there was only one. It turns out there are a few case reports. It doesn't, it doesn't change any, you know, any of my big points, but I noticed that like the, the unreasonable criticism <laughs> was that I was somehow going against science, that I'm anti-science and that I'm, you know, I I should be grouped with people who deny climate change is happening um, and that I must be anti-medicine or anti-doctor. And and that's it. I, I mean, I'm still kind of trying to make sense of who those people are on Twitter and what their agenda is. Um, Because it seems to be this kind of old school agenda of, like, uh, trying to smear alternative medicine. Um, And I noticed that there, like, a lot of the kind of uh, fighting that went on, um, (laughs) some in my, you know, in my stead or whatever, was, like, between integrative medical doctors and these skeptic people. And that this was bigger than this is bigger than Jen Gunter. This is bigger than vaginal steaming. This is really like this historic argument that has come up again and again about, um, evidence and, and who gets to have authority, who gets to have authority over health and the body. Um, so I think that that's what I saw playing out. Um, and yeah, the scientific American pulled the piece, um, we st- I mean, I still don't really have a good answer from them. And and the Daily Beast has written about it. Slate wrote about it. Um, there's another outlet that I thought was working on something like iMedia ethics. They all went to Scientific American and asked for an explanation, and, and there was no comment. Um, so I don't have a great answer about why it was taken down ultimately, except that I think that they became convinced that it was that it represented something anti-scientific that they didn't want to be associated with. Um, Because I think the initial, I mean, Gunter, she screenshotted letters that she wrote to Siam emails that she was writing to Siam in which she, you know, was claiming that I mischaracterized her, um, that she's, you know, she does not bully people online, that she only um, dismisses the, the anti-choice trolls with I'm the fucking expert. Um, which is a quote that she has.
0: Yeah. yeah, Yeah, yeah. She's sort
1: of known for saying that and known for saying, you know, um, I'm the expert. I get to say that, but plenty of people have now posted exchanges from her Twitter history in which she has been very dismissive of people who are not trolls, who are not anti-choice trolls, who are just people who have fought with her about endometriosis or fought with her about leap or fought with her about yogurt. Um, Uh, other journalists have come to my defense to say that she was weird about their reporting and kind of trolled them. And um, so there's a lot of example now about of of her behavior. And now there's also the record of how she behaved in the days after my piece came out, because she really, she retweeted a lot of nasty stuff. She um, called me a weird stalker. She called me a misogynist. She called me a liar. Um, she tweeted at my part-time employer. She was really on a, um, she spent a lot of time on Twitter in those days mm-hmm. <laughs> that the piece was up. And ultimately, um, I, I you know, I, I, can't speak for scientific American. I don't, I don't know why they ultimately, why they took the piece down, but I think it had something to do with this, with this smear campaign that, that it was anti-science and I don't think that that's my perspective. Um, you know, I, I, I try to, um, critique medicine from a very, from a place that's very gro- grounded in, in science and evidence. Um, and I, that's the place that I was trying to critique her from. I don't know that I made the best choice in focusing the piece so much on her because, you know, I think that, again, she represents something that's much bigger. She's emblematic of a problem that's much bigger than her. And it might have served the argument better if I had made it a piece that was, you know, made it a broader piece and not not focused it so much on her. On
0: the other hand, I mean, she really has uh, become quite uh, a celebrity. She really is she is emblematic of exactly what we're talking about because she has chosen to focus on taking down so much of what women are looking toward for answers and information. So it makes sense that that would kind of be an example that you might use. So, you know, I, I, I see why it went that way. I think a lot of us feel that way. We see this New York Times column and it's kind of got the same medical rhetoric and. Um, as going to any gynecologist or picking up any textbook would have in terms of what treatments are available with a sort of takedown of anything else that a woman might try if she doesn't just want a pharmaceutical answer and as if the pharmaceutical answer is the only rational answer and everything else is as that mommy blogger said stupid or you're even stupid for for asking the question
1: right and it's it's really disempowering to people which is so, not in my mind a feminist Response.
0: Well, you know, I have to say, one of the things that I find troubling about this whole picture as a feminist response is that I personally don't consider it feminist to take down other women publicly, you know, and I know that in your piece, you were not doing that. I don't consider it feminist for Jen Gunter to have taken down Gwyneth Paltrow and to attacked her, have attacked her personally. I guess I personally feel like you know, educating people, um, offering a better option and women are trying the best they can to fill this void. And, you know, this is where we need the answers. We need conventional medicine to look at why women are turning to those resources and those resources need to look at what they can learn from conventional medicine. But, you know, you stand in the middle of the road, you're going to get hit by a car and it's kind of what happened. But I do actually feel like that's where the the answer truly is it's not in this takedown back and forth lobbying. It's what are women asking for and what's missing and what, and re- redefining, it's not even redefining, but it's looking at the actual true definition of evidence, which is broader than what we're talking about, right? Just if, if, if thousands of women have had an experience that putting yogurt on their vulva Helps. We're not talking about, you know, treating their child's meningitis with yogurt. We're talking about a benign, relatively benign condition, unless perhaps you're pregnant or have HIV, then it's different. But for most women, this is benign and it, see if it works. And if it doesn't, you know, we need to be deprescribing. We're already prescribing too many Antifungals, antibiotics, and other pharmaceuticals. So, to me, there's this whole other reframe that needs to happen. So, I have I have a question for you. You know, it feels like on one on the one hand, yeah. You know, I think one of the critiques I or comments I read from a number of different places. I think I read this in Daily Beast, some people's comments on your Twitter feed, um, or that you and Jen Gunter. It's so funny, it's like Jen Block, Jen Gunter are actually closer or have more similarities than you have differences. And I I'm not actually sure that that's true because I think the the intention and desire to help women is actually the same, but I think philosophically you're coming from completely different models. And you know, I lean toward the model that you're coming from, which is the operational model in the medical model is still patriarchal and based on decades, centuries of of racism and sexism and we need to really look at that and and completely see things differently. But is there anything, um, you know, is there anything that we need to think about? You know, we're coming into an election year. We all know what the situation is. You know, how do we all get, or can we all get as women, health, feminist oriented practitioners, journalists, et cetera, on the same side of the aisle? Because I feel like this division is only going to feed the problems that we're all collectively facing.
1: Right, right. Yeah. I mean, to your first question, I do think you're right that I think we are coming from different places philosophically. Um, and I think I think it comes down to authority. And I think I'm on the side of people having authority over their bodies. And I mean that in a very broad sense. So I think a lot of this comes down to people want people want providers, medical providers to be on their team and to listen to them and to be, I think they want providers who are humble, who can admit when they don't know something, Yes, when they, you know, when they get to a place where like, you know what, we don't have good treatments for this. Um, Here's what some other people have tried. I can't, you know, it's not, it's not standard protocol. It's not standard of care. It's not um, quote unquote. (laughs) evidence you know evidence-based but it is evidence-based in the sense of like people are you know that's the best that's the best we've got I think people really crave that like if you find if you find that provider who's honest and willing to be on a journey with you you know then I think that's you know that that's gold those are the people who love their doctors um and that's at least who I want in a provider I want someone who um, is going to be honest with me about what they know and what they don't know and who's going to listen and who's going to, who I'm going to be able to say to like, you know what, actually I tried a vaginal steam and it was, it was kind of nice. And they, and maybe they shrug and they go, okay, (laughs) but I don't want someone who's going to shame me or tell, or tell me that it's wrong when I know that there's no evidence to say it's wrong. Um, and I want someone who's going to ultimately say like, well, it's your body. It's, it's, it's up to you you know, um, even if you're, even if you're, you're wanting to do something that I think isn't best, you know, I'm speaking for the physician, like, and
0: hopefully you have a physician that you trust enough that when they can say to you, this is why I think it's not the best. You actually trust them as opposed to they're just shutting you down because it sounds hokey, natural or different and they don't
1: know about it. Right. Right. And I, I don't, I mean, I don't trust someone who says, well, I've gone to medical school and I have a degree. That's why you should listen to me. <laughs> yeah. That's so infantilizing. That's like when I tell my son because I said so. Like, <laughs> you know, that works because he's six. But um, I don't want to hear that from my provider. So I think, you know, I think that's that's what people really want. And that's what women are craving and what we haven't been getting from physicians because historically that has not been the model. Um, it's been very authoritative and authoritarian and, um, disrespectful of our, of our autonomy and authority. And it still is in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that that's going to be how it evolves. If it evolves, it's going to recognize the, um, autonomy and authority of the patient, um, and really put them at the center, not just the lip service of patient centered care and informed decision making oh, and all that. But like, I just
0: really? literally said that on another podcast I was on, and they, <laughs> that was what they used as the quote. I said, true patient care is putting the patient at the center of the universe. And it, right. it really, we have to be able to do that and, and listen to what, what women want.
1: Right. Right. And I think women need to take that back. Because I think we've, I think we've given it away in a lot, in a lot of sense, uh, senses. I mean, I think we, we give it away and and childbirth is so, um, we're so vulnerable because we've got this, this person, (laughs) we've got this, we've got this baby. I don't know that we
0: give it away as much as we've been taught not to take it. And we've mm -hmm. been taught not, not to take our own power. You know, we, I have, I have patients who cannot call me Aviva. And they will only call me Dr. Rom. I, I do not own a white coat. I left my white coat on the back of the residency door. And in fact, um, when I was on the Dr. Oz show, one of the times I was on, they brought a white coat to me and they said they wanted me to wear it on the show to look more do- like a doctor. And I'm like, <laughs> I am what a doctor looks like because I am a doctor and no, I won't wear the show- Won't wear the coat. And I, I said, if it's a matter of not being on the show or wearing the coat, I'll sh- I won't be on the show it's fine. And I you know I wrote a whole blog about why I don't own a white coat. It's really important to me to have phys- have folks understand not only are they germ breeders, but they really do represent this idea that we're differentiating ourselves in in white, which is like historically a you know judeo-christian color of purity and religiosity. Th- these are not unintentional um symbols, right? In medicine these are very deliberate symbols that are so so inculcated in our brains that we don't feel like we can question authority. And then particularly as women, we're taught not to make waves, not to cause trouble, not to speak up. And then, you know, as you said, we don't usually go into the doctor's office because we're feeling great. We usually go in because we're scared about something and we we don't have information and we're trusting someone else to give us that information.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, you know, I don't know, are we giving it away? Are we not taking it? But I do think like I've, you know, with, with the eShore piece, I talked to a lot of women who um, got that device and they were told, Oh, this is like the new way that we can do, you know, it's instead of tubal ligation, it's an alternative, it's quick and easy. It's this natural um, material. And they, you know, they, they did it. And the ones who had the complications one of the first things they said when they looked back on the experience was i wish i had done more research i wish i had asked more questions i wish i had listened to that little voice in my head mm-hmm. they 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 were angry with their doctors but the the person they were most angry with was themselves that they had that they had given away their authority i think that they had like you know, trusted the expert.
0: But like, I built a house a few years ago, right? And I think about this a lot. I mean, I had to have electricians, I had to have plumbers, I had to have people who could put in insulation. And I think particularly about the electricians, right? I mean, if your electrical wiring is not done, your house can burn down and you can be in it and you and your family can die. Like this is a big deal, right? This you have to have electrical wiring that's done safely. I did not have to learn about electrical wiring and switches and codes and research everything on the internet to know that my house was wired properly. I was able to hire a licensed electrician who is insured and trust that they were going to do what they were supposed to do. And so if my house had burned down because of faulty wiring, I wouldn't blame myself. I would be like, wow, that electrician really fucked up. You know, that was a bad electrician. They lied about their knowledge, whatever, whatever. But I would never blame myself and think, oh, I should have learned everything there was to learn about electrical wiring before I let that person in my house, you know? And And
1: that's why why we need experts, right? Like we want experts. Yeah.
0: But as women, like as women, if we go and get a procedure that we should be able to trust that license insured certified provider who was trained in something to do it properly, we shouldn't have to have the burden of making sure everything they say to us is true and accurate and safe and honest and that I think that's like a double burden on top of I mean the assure maybe is a it different is. case only because it's an it's a um, elective thing and you could choose something else. but still like there's so much burden on us. To make sure that that C-section really is needed when you're in the throes of it, or that hysterectomy really is needed when your doctor tells you that you know your endometrial lining is too thick and you could develop endometrial cancer, like all these things that we're told, then we then blame ourselves for the aha retrospect that we should have not had to even question. We should have been given real, reliable, honest information, and then and like that kind of feeds into women like we tend to blame ourselves for things like that.
1: I completely agree with you. It is a burden. It is a burden. And not and not everyone has the the time, resources, funds to do the all that work.
0: Or the met um, like to be able to read through medical st- oh. I mean, I have oh, I wait. went through medical training, uh seven years of medical training. Th- Five years of that included intensive study in statistics. And I still read studies and I'm like, I don't know if this P interval or like this, or this confidence interval or this P value or the chi square or the reverse regression. Like if I went through all that training and still can't interpret a study sometimes, How is somebody else supposed to interpret studies that may be published in medical journals when that study was actually paid for by the device company, cherry picked, the pharmaceutical company? It's like, how do we sort through that? We have to be able to trust the people who are representing that information.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with so much of what you're saying. We want experts, we can't possibly carry the burden of reading all the studies and knowing everything there is to know
0: um, Jennifer, thank you for the article that you wrote. Um, it's unfortunate that more women listening can't read it, but I do appreciate your taking the time to revisit what happened. Tell folks how they can find you.
1: You can find me on Twitter um, at, <laughs> <laughs> at writingblock, W-R-I-T-I-N-G-B-L-O-C-K. My website is jenniferblock.com, and I post a little bit on Instagram, uh, Jennifer block author. Um, and it, people can find the article um, it Ooh. was archived by you know it, it's in the web archive so that link has been shared around you know I I won't share it because I want to respect the editorial process but um, but it is it is out there and I'm working on something new about about all this so hopefully that'll be out soon
0: very exciting well when you get that link I know you'll let me know and I'll share it and Thank you. Listeners, thank you so much for joining me. Not only has this been an amazing episode with Jennifer Block, but this has been an amazing year and this episode closes out our 2019 season. So I'm really looking forward to bringing more content like this to you, but also more solutions that you can rely on from a physician who I hope you feel is listening, who also happens to be a midwife and herbalist. So maybe you can help provide some answers in those gaps that we have talked about today are out there. So I wish all of you a healthy, happy holiday season. I'll see you in the new year. And thank you again, Jennifer, for joining me.
1: Thank you so much.